Welcome to Nannyog's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 32, A Hat Full of Sky and The Sea and Little Fishes. Happy Olivia Rodrigo releases an album day, Nigel. Have you listened to Guts yet? No, I've just listened to the two singles, but I'm really... But I'm just, I'm really, I'm really fucking with Bad Idea, right? I don't know. It's just like, I like the energy of it. And especially just since she's like, oh, fuck it, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> she's She's got such a good, like, eye roll type uh, feel to her music. I've yeah. listened to the album once this morning. I My first impression is that the first half is better than the back half. But oh, so I need loaded. to... Yeah, but I have to listen to it again. I might actually like the back half more when I'm not like doing other things while I'm listening to it. But I really liked what I heard so far. So I'm going to listen to it again, definitely, before the end of the day. And I, I would love... I'm just going to say this now, and we can bring it back up later when we actually get to the novel. I would love a Tiffany Aching series, uh, like a mini series, whatever the version of this is, with Olivia Rodrigo's song as part of the soundtrack. I think it would work. Okay. I think so. I think it would fit. Maybe it might have to be a later one in the series. We can talk about that, but I think it would work for Tiffany. But first, before we get to A Hatful of Sky, we have to talk about the short story, The Sea and Little Fishes. Um, It's been a minute since we've talked about a Discworld short story. And this is a long one. Usually, his short stories are very short. Yeah, Theater of Cruelty was like three pages or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and even Trollbridge really isn't that long. And it kind of makes sense because for him, as he pointed out in the the intro to The Sea and Little Fishes, short stories were very difficult for him to write. So he didn't write that many of them, and he always struggled with it. Although he said The Sea and Little Fishes was actually like fully formed in his brain. So it kind of does make sense that this one would be a little longer if it was something that he had been considering putting into a novel. But I paired it with A Hatful of Sky because a C- The Sea and Little Fishes sort of acts as like a prequel to A Hatful of Sky because it introduces some characters that show up in A Hatful of Sky and it introduces the idea of the witch trials, which is a very important event that happens in the last act of the novel. So that's why I paired these two together. I think they actually go pretty well together. I actually also, because I've never actually read them together like this, I was surprised how many thematic elements that they also have in common as well. But quick backstory, just very, very short. It was written in 1998, so several years before A Hatful of Sky. It features the Lanker witches, Granny Weatherwax and Annie Og, and it was originally published in a sampler alongside a story called The Wood Boy by Raymond E. Feist, and later in a collection called Legends. Again, he had planned on originally maybe weaving this into a novel, but when he was offered the chance to have it as a short story, he thought, oh, this actually makes a lot more sense as a short story, which I agree with. I I think that this would not have worked very well if he had tried to put it, say, in A Hatful of Sky or in one of the um, witches books. I think it works very well on its own as like a short little peek into Granny Weatherwax's life. It is based on the, quote, ancient phrase that Pratchett totally made up called the big sea does not care which way the little fishes swim, which was actually said in the novel Nightwatch. So there was a character in Nightwatch that actually says that. I think it's Lutza, actually, who says that. 
and it serves as the basis of the title of this story. One sentence summary of this, basically a new a new character to us, which Mrs. Earwig or Mrs. Ozwig, as she likes to call herself, tries to organize Granny Weatherwax out of the witch trials and Granny Weatherwax tries to be nice in response. Nigel, what were some of your first thoughts about this story? I enjoy the witches anyway, but like, I like the idea of Granny Weatherwax viewing the like worst thing, the worst punishment she can inflict on someone is like admitting that they're right at a moment of her choosing. Like, because by and large, like this, this short story is like 40 pages, right? It's long. Yeah. Especially compared to some yeah. of the other ones he's written. Or at least in the like digital version, it goes from like like page one eighty something to like two twenty something or whatever the hell. Like so, it's around like forty ish pages, I think. But like that's really like not a lot really goes on. It's just like a lot of ruminating and things. And then you're like, then when you read a hatful of sky, you're like, oh okay, so that's what this is about, and that's who Mrs. Earwig is. I refuse to humor her. Um, <laughs> She, yeah, she's very, I, Mrs. Earwig is so interesting. It's really good character work, though. Yes. Like, he's not, he's not slacking, even though as well, like he said that it, it had a whole scene that wasn't working with it, you know, that he took out. It's still not like slouching, even though really nothing kind of happens. What's interesting about this story, I think, is that we're so used to seeing Granny in this context of it, it's not like any of this information is new to us about granny like it is very much consistent with who we know that she is as a character but we're so used to seeing her within these like life and death situations like often like yeah. against enemies that are very powerful who you know are very ruthless and she has to sort of use that pride and that nastiness as a weapon right against them or as a shield to protect herself this story there's none of that the, the worst person in the story is mrs earwig who granted is a very horrible person but it's not like she's protecting Lenker against mrs earwig right She's she's sort yeah. of fighting for her own relevance and her own identity. And so what we get in this story is just a chance to see her be extremely petty and nasty. You know what I mean? Like, and I I kind of like it. I kind of like, you know, seeing her just do something. It's not just her establishing like her dominance over the other witches. It's like this idea of like, oh no, this is like what this character does when she's between like these awesome battles with vampires and the elf queen and, you know, all of these, all of these other things as well. And so like, it it really does feel like an Olivia Rodrigo song in some ways, like, because, you know, Olivia Rodrigo likes to let out her pettiness in her music. And we all like to do that too sometimes because we all feel petty sometimes. And so this really kind of feels like we we're just allowing granny to be a little petty and to be a little nasty. Um, I did like as well, the like the other connection to the sea you know because it's like granny weatherwax is the sea and the rest mm. of the witches are the the little fishes and like how nanny og said saying that granny weatherwax is full of pride is like saying that the ocean or that the sea is full of water no like the sea is water yeah exactly and i like that mrs earwig doesn't get it like she's like i don't understand what you're talking about and nanny has to explain it to her 
Mm. Let's talk about Mrs. Earwig really quickly. She obviously has more of a role in this story than she does in A Hatful of Sky, even though she is still kind of important for what she stands for in A Hatful of Sky. I really like how this describes her, Nanny specifically describes her as someone who does things for your own good. Even, but it's like things that she thinks are for your own good, not things that are actually good for you. And I feel like we know this kind of person. It reminds me of all those people who are like, you know, they they try and get you to do some sort of like unpleasant thing. And they tell you like, oh, it'll build character or it'll do you some good. And it's like they're forcing you into this because that's what they've decided is good for you. Oh, God, it's a fucking Olivia Rodrigo song. We're coming back to Olivia Rodrigo. I don't trust anyone who says I'm doing this for your own good or it's for your own good. Like I it is like a phrase that just automatically sets off all of my alarm bells when somebody says that because like it's not really the other person's good. It's what you've decided is their good. And it it's it's not it is very close to a more authoritarian view of doing things for people instead of actually listening to them and trying to help them decide what their what the good is for them. Oh no, this is something that really like rankles me, especially in fiction, because like I don't really believe in a lot as a person. I just sort of like believe in like agency. Like if you can do something and you want to, just do it. Like within reason, obviously. Don't go around committing heinous crimes obviously you know but like if you want to if you want to change up your appearance just just do it if it makes you if it makes you happy makes you feel good do it if you're starving and you're in a supermarket like if you're on the edge of poverty just steal from them so i believe in agency and i believe in kindness but like what really you know like in fiction whatever and they're like someone steps into a character and they start like controlling them and it's like well no you have to do this or like they're trying to do something it's like well i can't let you do that that really rankles me i don't like people's agency being taken away from them and that like weird like infantilizing way they do it as well do it i'm doing this for your own good is very close to the greater good which is often used as a cudgel almost (laughs) against people especially minorities and yeah and it's also very close to i'm doing like a very religious like i'm doing this for your eternal soul or i'm doing this to save your soul you know what i mean like these these things have been it's very it's like the stepping stone towards things that have been used to excuse atrocities against people so i'm not saying that mrs earwig is like that level of evil (laughs) but she's like on that stepping stone of like that's the way that you could go with that logic yeah she's not like she's not starting forever wars in the middle east because of the fear of the specter of terrorism but like she's in the same like admittedly very large ballpark and i think she has a very inflated sense of importance she wants to be the big witch right and she Mm. sees granny weatherwax as someone who Occupy not only occupies the position that she wants, but as someone who will actively work against what she's trying to do with the witch trials. And this is something that we like, especially because Anagramma, who's her, who's Mrs. Earwig's disciple, like, you know, she's brought up essentially believing everything that Mrs. Earwig does through her education. Like, they just sort of view. Granny Weatherwax showing up at the witch trial and like 
they're like, oh, she doesn't do anything or she just tricks people. And then we all bow down to her, you know, like she yeah. has no actual like. And this is something that we saw in Lords and Ladies with the new school of witches that Granny, you know, like forcibly educated where they were like, oh, we're all about the, you know, the sort of like performative aspect of witchcraft. Yeah. And she's like, no, 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 no. It's it's helping people and just using common sense and stuff. But like they, they physically don't understand what witching is. Diamanda uh, is the the yes. the witch in Lords and Ladies who le- ends up letting the elves in because she has that, and that's also where we were introduced to Agnes as well because she was part of that original group. Even though, as Nanny said, Agnes was the only one who actually had potential out of that group, which we've obviously seen proven right by now. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was. The contrast in the story between that, I'm doing this for your own good, versus what Granny does, which is doing right by people. Yeah, because like all throughout like the earlier witches books, we get we get these moments of the witches doing stuff. And it's sort of like we're in with them. And even with Magrat, she's like the outsider to them, but she's still part of the in-group. And so it's like this all makes sense internally and externally. But then when you start getting Agnes and now Tiffany, where they have to like explain how witching works and the whole concept of like being on the edge and, you know, like it says in a hat full of sky, granny is constantly testing people because people on the edge need to not break, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so we're seeing that she understands like, oh, if needs be, and this is something that Miss Level does as well and understands, you know, like if needs be, you have to trim an old man's toenails or do all these just horrible tasks for for no thanks. But it helps everyone else out, you know, and like you do something and then someone else gives you something that you give to someone else. So you've got nothing, but then someone else will owe someone else a favor. And that's you keep communities ticking on. You know, it's really community focused and you can't really have a community without understanding you're doing right by other people the idea i think of doing right by people is the the difference is is that i'm doing this for your own good emphasizes the person who's doing the action like i am doing this i have decided this versus doing right by people which emphasizes the people part of it I don't yeah. necessarily give you what you want. Like he, she said, the example that Nanny gives is the the man whose shoulder was dislocated um, in a, a farming accident. You know, what he wanted was a painkiller, but what was what he needed was for Granny to reset his shoulder, which was painful, but it's actually what he needed to have happen. And so the idea was, is that this is actually like thinking about what people need and what's, you know, you know what I mean? Like, instead of like, this is what I've decided you need. It's like, well, like, yes, this is what you want, but you know, as well as I do, that this is what needs to happen. You're just not going to like me very much for it. And like this is then as well, we see then the difference between how Miss Level and Granny Weatherwax works at the end that or towards the end of A Hatful of Sky, where Miss Level is constantly telling the family, you know, if you have your outhouse built this close to the well, you're going to get sick because of, you know, microorganisms. And like, that's the truth. But... They're, they're not going to believe that, whereas Granny understands she needs to tell them that there's goblins. 
And then all of a, a story they can understand. Them. Yeah. Here's, and then that's something that Tiffany, like we're, we're really leaning into then, or at least I am t- things that um end up in a hat full of sky. Like that's what she says to the hive or, you know, like here's a story you can believe essentially. I really liked to, this is, this story is really more from Nanny's perspective than it is Granny's. Although we do get some Granny POVs occasionally, which I thought was interesting because we, we've seen Nanny's POV in the past in, in the witches books, but I feel like we got more insight in this book to how Nanny, how Nanny views her relationship with Granny. Yeah. I thought that scene at the end or near the end was really interesting where because Granny is pretending to be, or pretending, she's trying out being nice. Whether she's pretending yeah. or not is up to debate. She's giving it her best shot. Yeah, and we get the thing with uh, Pusey, Nanny's grandchild, who draws something he doesn't like out of the, the lucky bin and throws a fit because he's a child. And Nanny's first thought is Granny did something to him. And she realizes very quickly that that's wrong, right? And 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 obviously it's very wrong because Granny would never hurt a child, which she says at a different part in the story. But because she has seen the terrible things that Granny's done, she said Granny has done some terrible things. They were always to the deserving people, but or people who deserved those terrible things, I should say. But that doesn't make them any less terrible. I was very interested in that little bit of conflict there where like she knows who Granny is. She knows that Granny would never hurt a child. But because of the stuff that she knows about Granny, her first instinct was still, what have you done? You know what I mean? To to Pusey. That that was sort of fascinating because like, yeah, they're each other's oldest friends and they're sort of like the oldest people really in their communities. And so so like, you know, they know each other so well. But then like, isn't that really what deep friendship is? It's like, or I don't know, not even deep friendship, maybe, but like after something happens and it's like, well, you know, this about a friend now and you have to sort of incorporate that into what you know about them. And it's like, well, like if you've seen someone do something in a life or death situation, you're going to have to like factor it in where it's like, I know they'd never do that to me, but like, you'd have to wonder what Nanny's thought process is for that to come up, you know, and then like before she can rationalize it and before she finds out that Granny didn't do anything, being like, well, what did Pusey do to deserve it? Like that thought surely must have like, like it must have been like, oh, Granny did something. Then second thought, what did Pusey do? Then third thought be like, Granny would never hurt a child. Because presumably as well, all the rest of the witches that we've seen and had POVs with, you know, Magra, Granny, Nanny, and Agnes all have first, second, and third thoughts, but we've never really had them called attention to, really, because they're not, they're not really learning about the even, but they were never drawn attention to with Agnes. I suppose, you know, it can be like, well, Pratchett only really thought of, thought of them or thought to talk about them with Tiffany, maybe. Yeah, like you have to wonder what that thought process is. Although we've had hints of it in other books, it's just not... I think that part of it is is that I don't know if all witches see this phenomena that they're describing with the, the second thoughts and the third thoughts the same way. That's really Miss Tick's terminology that Tiffany is using to kind of describe something that's happening within her own mind. And so I wonder if Granny Weatherwax and Agnes 
I mean, we've seen it actually happening with them before. It just hasn't been described in that way. So I wonder if that's kind of part of it as well. There's like a different framework depending on which witches, which witches you've kind of learned which, which from. Which is which. <laughs> um, another thing that I thought was really cool about this story was Nanny explaining, and we've talked about this before in earlier witch episodes. She's explaining the difference between witch and wizard's magic, and she says it's hammers versus levers. That wizards will use hammers, like, and witches will use levers. So it's the difference, she says, between shaking a mountain to start an avalanche and dropping a snowflake in the right place. What did you think about that description? That Because, like, in earlier books as well, we've got, oh, well, it's headology versus geometry. And then as we go on, we've sort of like really specified out of that into like specific examples of how this works and stuff. And again, this is like a lot of stuff Then we get into in a hat full of sky. But I do like the, the idea that one of them is carefully precise and the other one is essentially just trying to pick a lock with a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to use all that brute force. And I think it's also very telling that in both this story and in A Hatful of Sky, it is emphasized that Mrs. Earwig is married to a wizard. And that is, or a former wizard, because obviously wizards are not supposed to be married because that could lead to the birth of a sorcerer. We talked about that in sorcery specifically. Yes. So it is interesting to me that... The connection between Mrs. Earwig and wizards is very emphasized in both the story and in the book. I think in order to show that she she definitely aligns more with the geometry version of witchcraft as opposed to the headology. I did want to talk about the ending because you've brought this up on the show before, I think. I think you have. We've have definitely I? talked about Doctor Who on the show before, but the ending of this story really reminds me of that episode of Doctor Who with the whole, like, I could bring you down with just, like, a couple of words, and it's the, doesn't she look tired look? Yes. That that whole thing. That, what Granny Weatherwax does to Mrs. Earwig here reminded me of that so much. Oh my god, you're so right. I mean, she's like, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) And Mrs. Earwig just, like, completely loses her shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. I mean, both in the story, but especially just, like, the Doctor Who moment. I haven't thought about that in so long. Doesn't she look tired? Oh, my God. Yeah, because that's, that's placing a snowflake in the right direction. Because, like, you know, when you look at the wizard books especially the early Rinswim ones, it's like these big world-ending sort of like things and they have to do last stands and all this sort of thing, especially like interesting times where they're talking about like final moments and things. But all Granny has to do is just like slip in a knife, essentially. That's all she, all she ever needs to do. Yeah, and I love at the end, like, so Mrs. Earwig slaps her, basically. And, you know, she's mm. pulled away by these witches. And I love that Granny Weatherwax just says, I hope Mrs. Earwig is all right. She seemed a bit distraught. Like, that that to me is what, like, sold the whole, like, doesn't she look tired? 
like attitude towards it like this idea of like oh she seemed i hope she's okay like you know what i mean (laughs) even though she's the one who like made her like this and i like how granny describes it later as like it was like pulling away someone's chair when they're expecting to sit down Uh, yeah have you ever had that done to you oh it's horrible it's a horrible prank i hate it I hate it because I actually know someone who like seriously injured themselves or they didn't injure themselves. They were injured because someone did that. Like they broke their tailbone basically. So like, no, don't do that to people. It's not a good prank, but yeah, like that is kind of like what, what Grady does to her, um, which I think was perfect actually. And I like how Grady's like, I put nothing in anyone's head that wasn't already there. I mean, just like in terms of connecting things as well, it does it does feel like I haven't seen Better Call Saul, but the bit in the courtroom where the guy just like goes crazy accusing Saul and calling him slipping Jimmy and stuff, he's like, Oh, you have to arrest him and then like we're just like close in on his face and then when he's finished, he's like flust I don't know this guy's name. <laughs> I've just seen it on TikTok. <laughs> but then, like, it pans round to the jury, and they all look aghast, because this has just been, like, some insane rant that he's just gone on. And it's, like, yeah. based on a scene from, like, like a different film where the, the same thing happens, you know, where it's just, like, you think you're so right, and then, like, you've really just fallen into making yourself look untrustworthy or unstable or whatever. But then as well, the thing that Granny says, that's something that Lucifer says in the Sandman comics. I never made anyone do anything they wouldn't have done themselves. You know, like they always blame. Oh, they always say the devil made me do. He never made anyone do anything. That's something that kind of comes up in uh, Good Omens as well, just to make that connection um, in the novel. When they talk about how, like, there are things that are extremely evil that the demons in hell never made humans do. That was all them. And so I think that that was that was really interesting. Uh, whereas Crowley is like, I've added so I've added extra time onto people's commute, and that will make them so just like angry that altogether all the people on this motorway will have so much negative energy in the world. Uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, humans then are like, we're just going to commit atrocities. <laughs> yeah, he, doesn't he say he like went to go check out the Inquisition and then spent the better part of that century drunk because he was just like, yes. this is not like a thing. Yeah. It's it's just a fun little character moment. I was I will say I was happy to see Agnes even briefly. Yes. I thought that was that was really nice to tie her into it as well. I mean, I suppose you can't really tell me you can't really tell me if she appears again cuz you know like when we finished Lords and Ladies you were like, "Oh, this is essentially the last we'll see of Magrat in a starring role." And then we had the books with Agnes. Yeah. Like, are we going to see more of Agnes or is that her essentially done as a main character? Or can you tell me that? Uh, honestly, I don't know, but I, I she's not going to appear as a main character again because we've finished the witches books and we've moved on to like Tiffany Aching being like the center of the witches. But I don't remember if she shows up again, though. She might. You never hmm. know where some of these characters are going to pop up in, in some of these books. but. So I would definitely say a fun, very low stakes in terms of 
Disc World Significance short story. And I think it does a great job of introducing some of the themes that we're going to talk about in Hatful of Sky. So we'll, I, I'm, I'm sure we will refer back to the sea and little fishes here later. Uh, but let's move on to A Hatful of Sky, which is the 32nd book in the Discworld series. It's the second book in the Tiffany Aching Branch, um, which has sort of become the main witch branch of the series now. Uh, the book is also a sequel to that short story that we talked about specifically. Yeah, it was published in 2004. It's set two years after the events of the We Free Men. Um, it is also still a young adult novel. So he's definitely continuing sort of that vibe in these in this particular series. Um, it won a lot of awards um, when it came out. It won, for example, the Locus Award, the New York Public Library Books for Teenagers, the Pacific Northwest Library Association, like all sorts of awards um, when this came out. People found it very, very compelling. Quick summary. Two years after she kicked the Queen of Fairies out of the Discworld, Tiffany Aching is off to learn some formal witching. She quickly learns that apprenticing to a mountain witch isn't as glamorous as she believed it to be, fixing broken bones, birthing babies, and caring for old men. Where's the magic and the mystery? But soon she has a bigger problem. A hiver is after her, and this time the Knack Fiegel might not be able to help her. So, Nigel, this one, for real, is one you have read before. <laughs> what... <laughs> this is the first Discworld book I've read, but I, I'm actually rereading. What were your thoughts about it when you read it the first time? And what are your thoughts about it now that you have read all these other books leading up to it? I thought it was great, but I feel like as well, I don't know if I was really cognizant when I read it the first time that this was a sequel and not just like a book where they drop you in in media res, you know, where it's like, yeah. this is a thing that's happened. Because then I, I know I've read some of the other one. I haven't read The Shepherd's Crown. I know I've read some of the other Tiffany Aching ones. And they have them in the library. But it never like occurred to me to request the one that came before. I never did that. But I thought it was really fun. I thought the Hiver was... I, I don't. You say Hiver and I say Hiver. <laughs> and I say hello. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, what what is correct here? You know, Hiver might be right because it's like a hive, like a, a hive of identities. I just said Hiver because that like phonetically makes sense to me, but Hiver might be mm. it might be more metaphorical there. Anyway, continue. Uh, all of our French listeners are going to be writing in me like, um, actually, it is hiver, um, like the French <laughs> word for winter. That's a thing yes. I remember going into secondary yes. school. French class being like, oh my god, that's like the thing from the Discworld book. Except they <laughs> didn't really have a concept of Discworld because all of the like actual Discworld books were in the adult section, which I did have access to, but I never really borrowed from back when I was using the library at the time. And so like I remembered certain parts of it still to this day, like the Hiver and then where Tiffany talks to death. Um, which is why then I was really surprised when we read The We Free Men, why Death wasn't in that one. Because I was like, well, I know he's in one of them. I don't think I really remembered the name of this one <laughs> to be like, oh, that's the one I read. But then when I was rereading it, I sort of forgot like the back half of the book, you know, after they banish the thing and... Then when they go to the witch trials and stuff, I forgot that that was like a whole stretch in between. I thought it was just one thing. So I like read that and I'm like, well, there's still 60 pages left 
so like what happens and then i'm like well maybe it isn't this book you know that i remember these things out of so i like fully gaslit myself for a while being like maybe this isn't the one i read maybe it's uh wintersmith that i read that i'm remembering these things from but no then it turns out i was actually correct and i was just like too eager (laughs) if you haven't read it in the context it would be harder to remember the second part of the book because the second part of the book is really that the thing that plugs us back into the witches as a community you get granny weatherwax you get the witch trials you know like the first part of the book is still very tiffany centered yeah well i didn't even remember granny weatherwax was in the book to be honest with you i i legit was like this is a book about tiffany and she does these things on her own and then there's the 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 fairies which is really what i remembered and then like when i read the we free men and then granny weatherwax and nanny auger and i'm like oh yeah this is connected to the thing and obviously i'd read 30 Discworld books before that that are all interconnected but like, right <laughs> up until we started this thing and re- started doing nanny Auger's book club if you had asked me i could not have told you that there was a character called granny weatherwax in that book let alone her significance you know i was just like legitimately tiffany's just a witch who figures these things out on her own (laughs) like like what the fuck is going on i will say that pratchett if if you had read these but like if you were a teenager or a young adult and you had been given just the Tiffany Aching books. So you'd read like the We Free Men and then A Hatful of Sky or just A Hatful of Sky like you did. I don't think you miss anything by not knowing the greater context of Granny Weatherwax. I mean, you do get like some really fun shout outs in this book to like other books, like the thing where she borrows the bees and the thing where they they talk about she, a vampire bit her and then they started craving tea and biscuits. Like you do yeah, you get these other references to other books, but you don't necessarily have to know that in order to read these books. They do a great job of introducing her sort of as the 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 leader that the witches haven't got, which I love that scene with Miss Level where she's horrified when Tiffany implies that Granny Weatherwax is the leader, where she says, no, like, that's completely against the spirit of witchcraft, and Granny Weatherwax would never allow it, <laughs> which I think is... It's just like a perfect explanation of who Granny is. So I think that, like, you could read this book and have no idea that Granny Weatherwax has her own books. But I do think there's a lot of things in this book about Granny that become a lot richer knowing the history, which I definitely want to talk about as well. But before we get there, I want to talk about Tiffany. Because Tiffany is obviously the center of these books. um, And sort of tracing her growth from where she starts at the beginning of The We Free Men to where she ends at the end of The Shepherd's Crown, which is the last book of the Discworld. Um, It is the last one that was published. I think it's going to be very important to understanding this particular branch of the Discworld. So let's talk about her first. She's 11 now. So it's been two years. How do you feel about where she is at the beginning of this book and her arc in this book? I like Tiffany and I like her arc. Uh, this feels like there's a massive butt coming. Yeah. I, I just I don't know how I feel in general about like 
protagonists in books forgetting the things they go through straight away and i understand that like it makes sense in the world of the text but it's like you know she spends the whole thing being like i don't know if i actually met the queen of fairies i don't know how i did that and it's like well you've you know when you've read the book you're like yes you did like we know you did why do you keep saying this i mean i think it's a expression of extreme self-doubt I don't think she actually believes that i think it's more like how could i be the same person if i can't even make a shamble work you know what i mean yeah but like she's clean forgot it and then like at the end of this one she's like well i'm not gonna remember this either so i'm like Meh, eh. i don't know that kind of annoyed me but i i like her growth as a character and there's a very clear character arc and maybe it's because as well she's young that you can get these like really developed character arcs because in between books she's not like making massive jumps it's like it's been two years since that happened and she's still on the farm she's not already gone and trained and become a witch and this one she's like getting basic training and like she's failing at it you know and there's what how many other books in this series have like three isn't it three more yeah there's five in total yeah yeah, so, like, we still have all that to go. So I'm excited to see how that goes. You know, especially when you compare it to, like, oh, I mean, Rincewind, who had no character arc. Yeah. <laughs> well, he started to have one, and that, I think, is what was so disappointing, was that he has yes. a character arc from... For three books. <laughs> from uh, Color of Magic to Sorcery is really a great arc for that character. It's after that where he regresses that it becomes so disappointing. And then, like, some of the other ones, like, The Watch have character arcs, but they're, like, more thematic, really. Right. And they're adults, so it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, where it's, like, you can point to individual moments where it's, like, well, Vimes has reassessed his bias towards, insert, magical subgroup. Uh, Right. (laughs) Because she's a child... All of her character arcs are tied to what we know about children growing up and adolescence. So there's a little bit more weight put on, like, she's growing up, right? Whereas Vimes is already a fully grown character. And that doesn't mean he doesn't learn things. It just means that he doesn't have... His character arcs aren't tied to all the other character arcs that we know of for that character. It's tied to him as a character. Whereas Tiffany, it's like, okay, anything that she does is tied to what we know about, like buildings roman or about coming of age stories or about you know what i mean like there's like a whole like genre and trope that we have to kind of you know have in the back of our minds while we're reading about this character it's interesting because in the first book she's nine which puts her very firmly into that child role right and she does have an arc where she learns something but she's still a child at the end of that book this book she's 11 and she's like very much on that cusp of adolescence right she's not quite there but she's she is almost to the point where she's going to start you know going through puberty going through adolescence and she's trying to understand what it means to be a witch within the community of witches. Whereas before it was like, she was very much alone, right? Like I'm the only one who's here. I'm the one who has to take responsibility. This whole story basically becomes a metaphor for Tiffany trying to find her own identity, right? Who is she? What does she stand for? 
it's very clever that Pratchett introduces the villain, the Hiver or the Hiver, as sort of anti-identity. It's something that takes on the identity of its host and tries to, like, be the host, right? And so it ends up collecting all of these different identities, sort of ghosts of memories, as um, Granny Weatherwax calls them. And so it feels like it's interesting that we have Tiffany trying to forge her own identity, trying to understand what her identity is, but she's pushed up against something that inherently doesn't have an identity. Thematically, it's really interesting that the Hiver takes over Tiffany's body while she's attempting to visualize herself. Yes. Yes, the see-me borrowing that she does. Which I thought that was so funny when Mrs. Level, when Miss Level, sorry, figures out that Tiffany, like, came up with borrowing her, well, not invented, but, like, she learned how to do it herself because she didn't have like a good enough mirror and she's like that child (laughs) tiffany is an extremely gifted child which is another really big theme in this book because she is obviously very talented she might be more talented than any student since granny weatherwax um, was a student but that means that she Mm. has very special challenges so she's gonna she's going to hit the advanced stuff really hard like she comes up with borrowing kind of out of nowhere on her own just to like give herself a mirror but she can't make a shamble right so it's like she like skips all of the easy steps and goes straight to the hard stuff but she doesn't quite understand how she's doing the hard stuff so she's learning very differently than say Petulia or anagramma or one of the other less talented witches would but she has her own struggles because of the fact that she's so talented but also like i mean granny weatherwax has never made a shambles work in her life because she's never needed to. So we get that like affirmation at the end. What I think is important as well with her character arc and like her magical growth is like no one ever really treats her like a child. Yeah. I mean, they're like, we want to protect her, but they're not like talking down to her. And maybe that's like the implicit understanding that witches have where they're like, well, this is you as a person and you're not really defined by your age. If you can do something, you can do something, just watch out. But no one like, you know, you know the way where it's like, uh, you'll have like a a character who's young doing something or at least young looking. And there you always have like, Oh, aren't you so cute? And that kind of thing, like trying to slow them down. No one ever does that with Tiffany. That's why Tiffany doesn't tell anybody in the first book where she's going, right? Because she says, like, they're going to say things like, oh, you're too young or, you know, like, and the Knackback Fiegel don't Mm. understand it because she's bigger than them. And they have a really hard time understanding the correlation between age and height. And so, like, you know, for them, it's just like, yeah, you're the witch. You're going to do this. It's fine. Yeah. So that's why she's the big wee hag. Yeah. I, I do think it's hilarious that. You're right. None of the witches treat her like she's a child, except for when Granny Weatherwax needs to treat her like a child in order to convince her of something. Because And Tiffany even calls her out for this, right? When she, because Granny Weatherwax is like, well, I'm going to come with you to face the hiver. Like, you're not going to go by yourself. And Tiffany tries to argue. And the argument that gets her is Granny saying, you're 11. I can't let an 11-year-old go off to face the hiver by herself. But Tiffany understands that it's not, that's not actually why 
Granny Weatherwax is doing it, she's just using that as the reason that's going to get Tiffany, right? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, she she even says, like, oh, now it's convenient that I'm 11. Like, <laughs> But it's also, like, Granny... Like, you know, what we learn later where she knows that the Hiver is only going to go to Tiffany. Like, it doesn't matter really then that Tiffany's 11. Granny needs to say that so Tiffany will shut up and focus. Yeah. You know, it's not actually like you're 11 and you need an adult here to help you. It's like you need to think that you're being protected by an adult so you can figure out how to deal with this. And then I just, I really love the moment where. Tiffany's like, well, what would have happened if I lost? And Granny's just like, well, I would have done my best then. Yeah, like I always do. Yeah, which felt yeah. very Granny Weatherwax in the moment. But I also think Tiffany needed to hear Granny say, because uh, what Tiffany, Tiffany is so afraid in the latter half of the book that the Hiver is going to take her over again, right? Because she saw what she herself was capable of when the Hiver was in control. And, you know, again, she said, you know, she said that the worst part is, is that that really was her, even though the Hiver was in control, even though she would have never done those things on her own. The Hiver was really just acting on those impulses, right, of the of the subconscious that say, you know, oh, like, I'm annoyed by this person, so I should just kill them. Or like, I, you know, want to look like Anagramma and Mrs. Earwit. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's. It's reacting to those feelings that we have all the time, but we never let out because we know that they're not. We overrule them, basically. Um, Tiffany says, you know, you were listening too much to the monkey. We know when to listen to the monkey and when not to. But like, I think Tiffany Mm. is so afraid that she actually does need Granny Weatherwax there because she needs to know that Granny Weatherwax will stop that from happening if it does happen. So like she says, what if the Hiver takes over again? And Granny Weatherwax says, you'll have to face me then on my ground. And I think Tiffany needed to hear that. I think she needed to hear that Granny Weatherwax was not going to let her be out of control again. I think nearly also like an affirmation of the, like what Tiffany can do herself, because Granny is essentially convincing her that she's going to fight. And I mean, like, because of people's belief, you know, like, I think Tiffany thinks that Granny would win on her own turf but then like tiffany won against the hiver in her own mind in on her turf she brought the land to her and yeah. granny is has the same thing of telling the land what it is and now that we keep getting that through the tiffany aching books that telling the land what it is it really like contextualizes a lot of the the things that were the, at least i thought were jokes you know of like Granny has never lost. She knows exactly where she is. It's just the world that doesn't know around her. But it's like, yeah. well, if she tells the land what it is, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I want to talk about this a little bit because it comes up also in the sea in Little Fishes. But I wanted to wait to talk about it until here because I think it makes more sense to talk about it in the context of A Hat Full of Sky. So Tiffany's very tied to the chalk, right? Very much so. Yes. That is all. That is the only place she wants to live. She's terribly homesick for it. You know, even though she knows she needs to go away in order to learn, the chalk is who she is. The land is in her bones, right? Land under a wave is what her name means. And there's this constant emphasis on she tells the land what it is, which is something that we've heard before. But the new addition to this is the land tells her who she is. 
And so like yeah. it folds back into this identity search that she has, right? Awfully wee Billy says, you know, she tells the land what it, what it is and the land tells her who she is. First, let's start there. What did you think about that addition to what we've heard before? I, I will say that in a minute. I've also just now realized that's a really clever uh, that like the chalk is in her bones because they're, yes. they're both made of calcium. Yeah, and um, and there are and there are bones in the chalk <laughs> because of the little fossils. Yeah, but I like that because one of the things that we see through this as well is that like Tiffany, she's clinging to her green clothes as well. Yeah. Uh, like apart from her identity on the chalk, it's her green clothes. And then when she goes and meets the other witches at the Sabbath, uh, like Anagramma, especially, you know, like, oh, well, we wear black and all this kind of thing. But then when she fights the Hiver in her own mind and she calls on the power of the chalk, the land under wave, you know, like we see the essentially giant Tiffany, you know, yeah. and it's the, her green the dress green is woman, made from almost. the land. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't help visualize I couldn't help but visualize it as, you know, like Ang and Korra are, they're in the avatar state and they go across the bridge to the giant, like spiritual version of themselves nearly. Like that's what I was sort of envisioning. Yeah, I could see that. It's a magical version. It's it's a magical version of being like, well, you know, you can you can take the person out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the person or the city or whatever version applies to you. Like, it's a nice magical way of being like, you're always going to be from where you're from. I think that it's interesting that her identity is so tied with the land because I think that. In many ways, I'm I'm glad you brought up Avatar: The Last Airbender because I think in a lot of ways Tiffany is the Avatar of the Chalk. Yes, and and that comes with a lot of responsibilities because she they it's sort of a symbiotic relationship, right? The land tells her what it needs, and she provides that, and by providing it, she's telling the land what it is. Um, and so it's like a a cycle almost um, that that is necessary and that is needed, and we saw why it was needed in the last book because without a witch without an avatar of the land, things go to shit really fast. And so yeah. she gains identity by understanding that that is her role. And that how, that's how she needs to perform that role. I do think it's interesting that in many ways, this book is telling us that we're being, Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax are being paralleled a lot in this book. Like in many ways, Tiffany is the next Granny Weatherwax. Granny Weatherwax she gives is her able her yeah, and she's able to teach and communicate with Tiffany in ways that she's never been able to with another student. She and Magrat never understood each other. Agnes, you know, like learned a lot from Granny Weatherwax, but they never really, you know, got along in terms of like Agnes being able to learn from her in the same way, right? They they never really had that common ground. Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax don't necessarily, I would say, get along, but it's in a way that's mutually understood um, because they're both very stubborn. They're both, both very talented. They both kind of see the world in that like very black and white sort of way. And so I think that in many ways, Tiffany represents the student that Granny Weatherwax deserves. And I think that that's why we're supposed to parallel those two together so closely like this. 
Um, Granny Weatherwax, in a lot of ways, is her mentor. And and in a lot of ways, she's her replacement grandmother, right? Tiffany even says she's often comparing Granny Aching and Granny Weatherwax in her mind. And in the end, she does say, well, it, you do get two, right? And I never knew my other one. So, you know, Granny Not Weatherwax... Be cheating. Yeah, technically, it's a little cheating. Um, and I want to talk about Granny Weatherwax as a mentor, but I think it's interesting that they're paralleled in all these ways, but in one way, they are very different. And that is this relationship with the land. Because Granny Weatherwax does have a relationship with Lanker that is very special. And there is a sense in which she does communicate with the land and protect the land. And, you know, this is my ground. This is my place. But she also is the kind of witch that needs to travel. And that has, like, bigger ambitions, right? And Nanny Og worries about this. She worries that that sort of need will will take Granny Weatherwax down some bad paths. What's interesting is that in this way, Tiffany and Nanny Og almost have more things in common because Nanny Og, it says in in The Sea and, and the Little Fishes, she does not, like, it's fun to travel. She enjoys it. But everything she ever wanted and everything she ever needed is in Lanker, right? It, this is, like, where she belongs. What did you think about that sort of interesting deviation? Even though Tip, we've never seen Tiffany and Nanny Og interact with each other. But there is sort of that connection between the two of them that she doesn't share with Granny Weatherwax. Going back to Witches Abroad, you know, like you have, like where we find out about Granny's sister, Lillian, you know, where it's like she constantly has this reminder of like what could go wrong. And she has to be good because she was never given the chance. But like she's living constantly with the knowledge that like she could go bad. And like throughout this, like, you know, like you said, Tiffany is like the pupil granny deserves. But throughout this, and especially at the end, it really seems to hint that like she's like properly looking for a successor. Yeah. Uh, and Tiffany even says, you know, like maybe the reason she doesn't laugh is because she's afraid she'll hear an early cackle. Like, like it was really getting to the stage of it seems like granny is... You know, like she's sensing that maybe her time has come to an end. I hope we don't, because like I nearly fucking lost it when it, it tricked us into thinking she was dead in Lords and Ladies. Yeah. You know, so. But yeah, this idea of succession being tied to that, like finding someone who can do what I do and help out everyone and keep the witches in line if she should go bad, you know, like this sort of preventative measure. I have two responses to that. One is I really love the scene where Granny is winding Tiffany up and she says, you think you were bad? Like, I've seen bad. Like, this is nothing. And I always thought when I read that, that she's talking about Lillian, that she's talking yeah. about Lily, um, which she definitely sees as a mirror of herself. Yeah. Isn't one of the bits of advice she gives her never stand between two mirrors? I think Miss Level tells her that. But yes, it, that is like a basic oh. thing that gets said in this book, which is another reference to... Uh, to witches abroad. The other thing, though, too, is Granny's getting old. And we see it in this book in a way that we haven't seen it in previous books. And it's not that her age hasn't been a factor in previous books, but we haven't really seen her. You know, she stumbles and she says, Oh, there's a lot of rocks around here. And Tiffany's like, There's not that many rocks, you know? Or she, you know, has to kind of take more breaks than she used to. So mm. she is. He is aging, and I think that this book emphasizes that um, in relationship to her relationship with Tiffany. Because the one of the services that Granny provides is like someone to 
help on other people in their last moments, you know, like someone to help them through. And maybe that's also what she's doing. Not necessarily like a successor, someone who like is similar enough to her that she'd feel confident letting them help her across the threshold. Like, I know she has that bond with Nanny Og, but maybe it's the case of um, like where Angua says to Carrot, like if she goes bad, she wants Carrot to be the one to put her down and not Vimes, even though she's like, got that close relationship with Vimes. I think that they're friends because they're so different from each other. But I think she and Tiffany share a relationship based on understanding. They understand each other and they understand what needs to be done. And that that is something that I think make them closer, even though they're even though they're so different in age, even though they're so different in experience. I also really liked and this kind of brings us to another big part of the identity search that Tiffany's going through that granny and i'm gonna have to find the the section of this because i thought it was so cool granny sent when tiffany asks like why did you send me to miss level like oh you know why that why her granny says like oh because she's good at the community work she cares about people she even cares about people who are awful to her you know what I mean? Which Granny even says, I'm not very good at, which I, I think that's really interesting that we hear Granny actually admitting here, you know, I'm Miss Level's better at this than I am, right? About caring about this sort of thing. And so we sent her, you to her because you don't actually need help in the talent department. You, you know, someone like you needs to learn to care about these people because that's what's going to keep you from going bad. And I, I'm going to find it really quick because I, I actually really love what she says it's just so perfect it's in the chapter soul and center um which again tiffany aching books have chapters yeah okay so she says this is kind of a longer section but i I just love it so much why did you and miss tick send me to her then she said because she likes people said the witch striding ahead she cares about them even the stupid mean dribbling ones the mothers with the runny babies and no sense the feckless and the silly and the fools who treat her like she's some kind of servant now that's what i call magic seeing all that dealing with all that and still going on it's sitting up all night with some poor old man who's leaving the world taking away such pain as you can comforting their terror seeing them safely on their way and then cleaning them up laying them out making them neat for the funeral and helping the weeping widow strip the bed and wash the sheets which tell let me tell you is no errand for the faint-hearted and staying up the next night to watch over the coffin before the funeral, and then going home and sitting down for five minutes before some shouting angry man comes banging on your door because his wife's having difficulty giving birth to their first child, and the midwife's at her wit's end, and then getting up and fetching your bag and going out again. We all do that in our own way, and she does it better than me if I was to put my hand on my heart. That is the root and heart and soul and center of witchcraft, that is. The soul and center. Mistress Weatherwax smacked her fist into her hand, hammering out her words. The soul and center. Echoes came back from the trees in the sudden silence. Even the grasshoppers by the side of the track had stopped sizzling. And Mrs. Earwig, said Mistress Weatherwax, her voice sinking into a growl. Mrs. Earwig tells her girls it's about cosmic balances and stars and circles and colors and wands and... And toys, nothing but toys, she sniffed. Oh, I dare say they're all very well as decoration. Something nice to look at while you're working, something for show. But the start and finish, the start and finish is helping people when life is on the edge. Even people you don't like. Stars is easy. People is hard. 
And that, I just, I thought that that was such a wonderful encapsulation of some of the things we had talked about in the witches' books about how witchcraft is about that like community work. It's about making the community happen. It's about promoting, making people help each other, which is what Miss Level says that Granny Aching was doing, versus, you know, all of the trappings of powerful magic. And so on. Uh, but I just love that last line. Stars is easy. People is hard. Because then as well to go back to the whole doing things for people's own goods and doing things, you know, like for the good of the community, like far too often you can sort of like ascribe away things because of, or at least in like the olden times, which this is sort of based on, I guess, you know, you can sort of ascribe away things because of the circumstances of your birth and what was in the heavens at that time. You know, it's, you know, like uh, a, a good example is Edmund in King Lear, you know, where he's talking about being a villain of circumstance and what uh, stars were above the night he was born. You know, that's, that's too easy to take away blame from the things you do. Whereas Granny Weatherwax knows this. She says that like stars are easy. And then this is something that Tiffany realizes she has to come to terms with the fact that like, no, it was her who killed half of Miss Level. It was her who stole the money from the box. And like, yeah, she gets absolved and Miss Level forgives her. But like, she has to then live the rest of her life knowing that she does those things and that like, if worse comes to worst, she could do those things again. I, that actually comes up like right after this conversation because Tiffany is like the hiver was me, you know. It was it was using my thoughts, you know. It was using the things that it found in my head. And Granny mm. says, "Without the bit of you that was locked away, remember that." And you know, she says, "The locked up bit was the important bit." Said Mistress Weatherwax. Learning how not to do things is as hard as learning as is as hard as learning how to do them. Harder maybe. There'd be a sight more frogs in this world if I didn't know how to not turn people into them. You know, like the idea of like people are are hard because they're they're mean and they're ungrateful and they're stupid. And, you know, like you, they do things that are actively harmful to them. And, you know, if I uh, if I can turn people into frogs, it's actually harder not to turn people into frogs because like they're just so annoying, you know, sometimes. But I, I do yeah. like what she says after that, where she says, that's why we do all the tramping around and the doctoring and stuff. Well, because it makes people a bit better, of course, but doing it moves you to your center so you don't wobble. It anchors you, keeps you human, stops you cackling, just like your granny with her sheep, which are, to my mind, as stupid and wayward and ungrateful as humans. And to me, I think that's interesting how she says, like, it is important to do this work because it's good for the community. But even more importantly, it reminds you to be a good person, to not get distracted by the power and those thoughts that you have, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I wish I could have this or I wish I could just turn this person into a frog because they're horrible. And to me, that that is the kind of witch that Granny Weatherwax is. And I think Tiffany makes a very deliberate choice in this book that that is also the kind of witch that she wants to be, which is important, I think, for this whole character arc. If I had the ability to turn people into frogs when they annoyed me, I would do it all the time. And I I understand that that's a weakness of character and it's something bad. But I'm also at the stage where like I under, I understand that like, if I could, I would 
and that's bad. So, you know, like, I mean, obviously, in the case of turning people into frogs, that's not going to happen. But, like, may I tell a brief personal anecdote? Of course. <laughs> At work, someone turned in a purse that they found in the, like, upstairs bathroom for the cafe. And they said, I didn't look in this. It was just left hanging on the thing. So I don't know whose it is. I'm going to drop it into the customer service thing, which I was, like, I was working the customer service that day. And so then I called over security and I was like, this woman dropped in this purse. She hasn't looked into it. You know, is there like a form that we need to fill in? And he looked for the form. There wasn't any form. So he's like, right, I'm going to go through the contents. You're going to note them down. So we're going through this woman's purse. And, you know, we find we find her like details. She had like a health insurance card. So we had her name and her address. And so we were like, okay, so we know who this woman is. So we were able to like tell them when she comes back in that this is the lady. But, and this is like a really old woman. She had over 3,000 euro in her purse. And and she came back. Yeah, she came back like 10 minutes later. And we were able to give her her thing back. If I were in that situation... Now, obviously, I didn't steal any money from it at the customer service thing. One, I'm employed. Two, I'm on camera. And like three, I have morals. But if I were a customer and I was using the bathrooms and I saw that, I don't know if I wouldn't have checked the purse first. And having saw that amount of money, I don't know if I wouldn't have taken some of that money or all of it. I know it would have disadvantaged this old woman, but like in a blind situation like that, I don't know if I could 100% say I would have brought it down. And maybe that's just because like I'm really poor, you know, and like, yeah, you know, like I could use that money to pay rent and buy food. But also like because someone else could have done that. Someone else could have taken the money, brought down the person, said to us, oh, I didn't look into it. And then they can just be like, well, I didn't look into it. So someone else could have taken it in the intro right. and not brought it down, you know? Or just like, left, there's a lot of things. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or not touched it at all. So like, there's a lot of things and I feel like it really depends on your circumstance, but at least if you're aware and there's, you know, you know that there's other things you can do, like Granny Weatherwax says, then that's at least good. Because if you go your whole life and you're like, oh, I'd never do anything bad or I'm not capable of doing anything bad instead of being like, no, I'm definitely capable. And, and Granny can, knows. Yeah. And she also knows. have hurt people, you know, that that's at least better. I hope now there's not going to be a whole bunch of Nigel is over tweets. I didn't steal and I wouldn't. But I'm just saying I don't know if I would if I were in that position. Well, it actually ties in really well with the whole thing that Tiffany's going through, which is, yeah, when she saw that money with, you know, Mr. We is it Mr. Weevil money anyway? Weevil, yeah. Yeah. When she saw that money, of course, it went through her head like, oh, I wish I had that money. You know what I mean? Like, we all would think that if we saw like a large amount of money, like, oh, that would make my life a lot easier in this way and this way. That doesn't mean she would have ever stolen it. It just means that she thought about it because like that's just a natural like thing that's going to pop into your mind. The hiver doesn't know, or the hiver doesn't know 
it doesn't have morals. It doesn't have the the uh, super ego, right? Telling it, you know, oh, like that's just a thought that you know is a straight thought or whatever. And so that that was her whole point is like, yeah, she did think about it, but she wouldn't have done it. But the the hiver still just used what was there. It still yeah. just used like a thought that she had actually had, and that was the whole point about Granny saying like the the bit that was locked away is the important bit, which you know it it fits in really well with your story there too. But the idea of like we do this work so that way we don't use the natural power that we have to turn people into frogs or to steal or to uh, create, create a whole town of fairy stories. Right. Which is what uh, Lily does, you know, like, uh, so we don't go bad. I think that that's important for granny. And I think that's also why her cottage is so bare. She lives like a monk in some ways. And I think for her, it's a way of regulating herself. Like she knows that if she, starts, you know, collecting things or if she starts, um, you know, looking, looking for like not pleasure necessarily because she has pleasure, right? She, she loves tea and her biscuits and that's, you know, something that makes her happy. But if she starts like, you know, trying to build something like that for herself, she knows it's just going to take her down the wrong path, which is very different from like the way Nanny Og keeps herself from going down the wrong path. I think a lot of it is to do with desire to go back to the difference between Nanny and Granny and like the, the traveling thing, like Nanny knows that everything she desires is back at home. But like, if you're constantly looking for more then you're at risk of then, you know, something bad happening or turning evil in this case. Or if you know that you could do more, right? Like Granny knows that she could be Lily Weatherwax, right? Yeah. Very easily. And so that's, I think, what she's keeping in check, that knowledge. They're not twins, right? No, I think Lily's older. Okay. Just, I think it would be really interesting had they been twins, is all. Physically, they are. She says it's like looking into a mirror. Yeah. But, but a mirror of someone who had lived a much easier life than, than her. Before we move on i did want to talk about the hiver because we have been sort of dancing around it as a villain i think in some ways mm. the hiver f- works functionally like a metaphor it works better as a metaphor than it does as an actual villain it doesn't really do anything i think that the twist at the end is interesting where it tiffany kind of realizes like it's not evil it, it doesn't think enough for it to be evil it's just very afraid what did you think about the hiver and the way that it functions. I thought it was so cool, actually. Like, just a lot of the descriptions where it's like talking about like hunger without mind, and yeah. doing it, and like, like a lot of the descriptions where it's like searching, and then finds Tiffany at the start. They're like really terrifying, and even now, like rereading it as an adult of twenty three, the bit where it kills Miss Level. You know, yeah, just that description and the hiver killed that like genuinely chilling. But I think as well, what's really fascinating is this like the idea that it's sort of unconscious sentiment of, of one form or another, and it's giving people what it wants. And then when you like view it after the drones in the We Free Men. You know, where it's like these creatures that like trap you in a dream, you know, that you could just like live forever in while it's feeding on you. 
And those are also terrifying, but they're not really like, they don't have a lot of agency. They're just sort of like weird, like blobs of sort of malevolent thought. You know what I mean? It's obviously a very different being. In some ways, though, Hmm. the Hiver does remind me a little bit of the Auditors, not from a sense of malevolence, but in the sense that, like, it, because the whole thing that it tells Tiffany at the end, Arthur, they they name it Arthur, which I thought was great. The the thing that that the Hiver tells Tiffany at the end is, is that it can, it senses everything. It's like an open nerve, right? Like, when it looks at a tree, Mm. it sees, like, the entirety of the tree throughout time, right? And it's just so overwhelming all the time. And and so what it ends up asking Tiffany is, like, to help it to die, right? And I, I definitely want to talk about that. But that is very much like an auditor, right? An auditor, when it looks at something, it sees everything. Um, it sees it as quantifiable. Um, and that's why it hates humans so much, or they hate humans so much, or living beings so much, is because they're so messy. The Hiver isn't like that. It's not nearly as it's not nearly as malevolent or as I'm trying to think of the right word. Pendantic is not the right word, but like something like that as an auditor is, but it does have a lot of similarities in that sort of anti-identity, anti, you know, just it feels everything all the time. But whereas the auditors fight that feeling by trying to quantify everything, the Hiver is just kind of insane from understanding all of that. Yeah. And so it combats that by trying to take on an identity. Both of their identities are defined in negative values as opposed to positive values. You know, where it's like Tiffany is or like saying I am, whereas the auditors and the hiver are not a particular thing. They're defined by not being something like that, um, which I think is fascinating. Oh, there's I don't know. There's, there's something in a China Mieville book. Have you read Kraken? I have not. Uh, this this like creatures in Kraken, which sort of like fit into that, where they're like not really things. The way they're described feel kind of like that. I'd recommend. I think you'd enjoy China Mieville, just because like it's really like weird fantasy, like Kraken especially. I feel like you'd probably also like the city and the city. I don't know. I don't know about the new Krabazan trilogy, the one that starts with Perdido Street Station. I feel like you probably would. I just like I haven't read enough of it to like 100% be like, yeah, this is a book you'd vibe with. <laughs> but I think you definitely would like, especially the urban fantasy. Yeah. But I did. I did have an idea for a creature called the Un, which is just like very much that you know, the Un whatever, where they're just they're 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 not anything. They're just sort of depressions in space where a thing would be if it existed i think there's also a again the hiver kind of works a lot like a metaphor for tiffany in some ways because tiffany is trying to as an adolescent as a child who's like on the cusp of adolescence she's trying to find this identity so in a lot of ways she's trying out a lot of different identities which is very common like we all do that did this when we were you know, teenagers, especially, where we tried out a lot of different identities to kind of figure out like which one kind of suited us the best or, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, that's very, it very much works with the Hiver. This idea that it's so frightened and so overwhelmed all the time by all of this information 
that it just it just wants to hide itself in our identity. It just wants to like and uh, when when she realizes that the hiver is just trying to give its host what it wants, like what it thinks that it wants in order to like hide. <laughs> that is actually kind yeah. of heartbreaking for me. Like the idea that where it's it's literally not even trying to like be bad or evil because it has no concept of bad or evil. It's literally just trying to please its host so that way the you know it can stay and it can just be hidden and safe it reminded me of that what's that quote from it's from the very start of the mountains of madness like it's it's really i feel like the hiver is sort of like lovecraftian nearly yeah but also just like it's pure animal instinct well, and that's why it can't have a super ego. It's reading all of the animal instincts of Tiffany, for example, and not the the higher thinking. Trying to find it's one of the Cthulhu books or one of the H.P. Lovecraft books. Maybe it's not even Cthulhu. Oh God, I'm going to try and find this. So sorry, bear with me. But yeah, I think I think you're right comparing it to like a Lovecraftian creature. In a lot of ways. And like a lot of emphasis is put on the fact that you can't kill it, which is interesting because it turns out that all it really wants is death. It, it just wants to not exist anymore um, or not, you know, be anymore. So we get Tiffany doing something that has been hinted at and shown like kind of in the edges of different witches' books, especially with Granny Weatherwax. And she shows the Hiver the way is what it's called. And so she... Oh, I found it. Oh, yeah. What is it? So it is actually The Call of Cthulhu. I said that, and then I was like, no, that's not it. And it's At the Mountains of Madness, which is another one that I ended up citing. Yeah, so uh, the most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Like, if we were constantly aware of everything we experienced, we would also go mad. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, that's what the Hiver says, right? You invented boredom. You invented, uh, you know, these stories that you can put things in and you don't have to think about, you know, everything. How are you not insane all the time? And I just, I think that that is such a, an interesting way of talking about that. Like, we can't be aware of everything all the time. Um, And the Hiver points out that Tiffany knows how to do this because she calls it opening her eyes and opening her eyes again, which is what she does at the end of We Free Men, and she does it here at the end as well, but she only does it for a few moments. The the Hiver does it forever. It can't not do it. And so Tiffany has to show the Hiver the way, which is something that we've talked about in other witches' books. So we've talked around it. We haven't actually seen Granny Weatherwax do it, but it's implied that she does it, right? That she helps people to find the way, you know, when it's it's their time to die. Um, And we've talked about that as well. And so Tiffany helps show the Hiver the way she tells herself a story is what she calls it, but she, you know, creates the door and she opens the door and takes the hiver through. And we're, we find ourselves in that desert that we've seen a lot in these books, the, the death desert, you know, of people who are crossing the desert towards the mountains and you don't know what's on the other side. I thought it was really touching. And I mean, it kind of goes back as well to stuff we've talked about before with like the idea of like euthanasia, especially in a, a, a fantasy setting where it's like, it can't it like it it needs help like it needs help passing on crossing over in this case and so like the witches are the ones to do that yeah like it was really it was really sweet like 
from the moment that Tiffany realizes that it's a frayed on, I was just like, it was really tugging on my heartstrings in a way that like child me didn't fully appreciate. There's a lot of pathos here. I really also liked that moment where Tiffany when cause she has that, like that, that sense that she understands what's happening, but it's like on the back of her mind. And it's the thing about the third wish and I really love that moment where Granny Weatherwax tells her, like, the third wish is the wish that undoes the harm that all the other wishes did. And I thought that was a really interesting way of connecting back to the Hiver. And the idea that the Hiver isn't trying to do harm. The Hiver is actually just trying to give you what you're wishing for. But its actual wish, the thing that it actually wants, is the thing that undoes it, right? The death. The dissolution of being. And that is very sad, yeah. I think. The fact as well that it's, like, it's just identity, and then, like, they all, the, like, actual creatures those identities came from died, but they're still being, like, unnaturally kept alive in a, like, in a certain way, because they're now part of the Hiver, like, you're finally allowing those creatures, those people, to have the death that they, like, deserve. I mean... I, I don't think they deserve to die after being taken over by the Hiver. But, like, now they they can finally fully be at peace because all the bits of them are dead then. Yes. Sensibility bustle and the the saber-toothed tiger and the dinosaur and the... And the, the, the queen who killed people with scorpion sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, it, it's... Sensibility bustle was so fun. Oh, yeah, he was a great... I, I I liked Granny being like, oh yeah, he talked all night. He was an interesting person. Yeah, I thought that that was that was great. And I, I just always like when we come to the desert because I just think the desert is such a like great fantasy concept, like the black sands and the mountains that you have to travel to. And uh, you know, I, I liked how she said that you could see like the light caught in interesting places, and she realized it was because all those dead people were walking on their own journeys, you know, completely unseen by her. I, I thought that that was, that was just so good. Um, I always like when we come back here as a setting. I also really loved that Rob anybody was not going to let her go into that desert alone because he's under a geese, as he said. But I, I actually don't think it's about that. I think it's because Rob anybody, he even says, you know, I wasn't, I'm not going to leave you here alone. You know, and, and he says this, he kind of says something similar earlier in the book when he sends the other Nack Magfiegel off to do the raiding, because he says, like, I'm not, you know, if she does die, I'm not going to say that I we left her here to die alone. Yeah. Yeah. And that just, it was so touching to me, this idea that he, he was, it's not just that he's there, it's that he really, he really cares about her, you know, yeah. and he really, that just felt like, like a lot of. just douchey. Yeah, it felt like a lot of emotional maturity from a Mac Macfiegel that we haven't really seen, you know, in 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 pre in the previous book or in you know this. It's like he knows the right thing to do, even though he's you know he isn't usually that great at it. Let's talk about the Mac Macfiegel a little bit. I think the Mac Macfiegel in this book they function, I think, more as comic relief than they do as a central part of the story. What do you think about their role in this book? No, I have to agree with that, because, like, by and large, they're not really, they don't really do a lot, you know, like, they help out, and they, like, do the rating and stuff, 
but it's like very much a tiffany focused book so you just sort of get like wacky little hijinks you know where it's like <laughs> they're dressing as a scarecrow twice. <laughs> i loved all of the scenes with them as a scarecrow that was like i don't it was just so funny the way that they kept like arguing with each other like they couldn't like pretend at all and the way that they just kept throwing money around it was just perfect well because it takes that sort of trope of like two people in a trench coat arguing and it's like well what if there was a thousand tiny people in a trench coat i just have so many problems with my knees we do get some new characters amongst the knack fiegel because rob anybody has actually married there is a kelda now in the uh the Chalk clan. So we get Kelda Genie, um, who is from the Long Lake clan up in the mountains, and they did write things down. So we get literate uh, Knack MacFiegel now. And so we get him, her trying to teach Rob anybody how to read and how to write, which I thought was also He's very gold. funny. It's just so funny. The scene where he's like, he's spelling out all the different letters and he, and Awfully Wee Willie, who is their new gonical, uh, is like, uh, so it says this, and and he's like, yeah, I mean, it, anybody can just, like, read the whole thing. It takes someone very special to be able to see all the letters. <laughs> it, on the L-Space uh, annotations for this book, they do point out that the Long Lake clan that Keldagini and Awfully Wee Willie are from could very well be the Nakmak Fiegel clan from Carpe Juggalum. The lake they settled down, out, down at at the end of Carpe Juggalum isn't actually named in the book. But they do write things down because there is that moment where they tell Nanny, we of the Nakmak Fiegel, or no, I'm sorry, they tell Vernus, we of the Nakmak Fiegel are a simple folk, but we write very complicated documents. And so, like, it could be that that particular clan is actually where Jeannie and Awfully Wee, Wee Billy are from. I like Awfully Wee Billy. That that's, makes it sound like I don't like Jeannie. I do. I just, I really like him. And especially, like, when he shames them all yeah. for fighting when they come in, you know, and they're like, it, it's like, none of them would ever cross a Gonagal, uh, you know, when he's like that. I just, I think he's fascinating. <laughs> he carries a lot of heart, you know, after we've had some of the characters leave, he he carries a lot of the, like, emotional pathos of, of the group as a whole. Yeah. And maybe because he's so young. And short. <laughs> Like, he's very short, even for an Ackmack Fiegel. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, we're talking about that specifically now. That's the thing that made me laugh. He said he's very short for his height. Yeah, that's what he says to, uh, I think it's Miss Level, who says, aren't you short? Yeah. Which sounded very Star Wars to me. Aren't you sh a little short for a Stormtrooper? Aren't you a little short for an Ackmack Fiegel? And he says, only for my height. Uh, which yeah, well, normally it's like, great. oh, for my age. Yeah, What's interesting about both these characters, too, I completely agree with you. Uh, Awfully Wee Willie is great. And I love how he uses his he uses his position to sort of guide the Nakmak Vigil, not as a leader necessarily, just as a like, like when they're fighting, he uses a, he uses music to get their attention and he shames them, you know, or he, you know, makes Rob anybody feel like, you know, he's read that message that Tiffany sends them without actually like telling him what it is so i i thought that that was really great what i think is interesting about both these characters and what i i kind of liked about both of them is that they are so young and so new at their respective positions so like you know awfully we Willie at one point tells rob 
when they're inside Tiffany's mind, which the fact that it's the chalk just it killed me. The fact that that's the, what the in her inside of her mind looks like, and that it has Granny Aching's her her hut on wheels, her you know, in it still because that's her safe place. I like how he says to to rob anybody like I, you know I'm new at this like I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I know the songs and I know all the things, but I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm not as experienced as like, say, another Gonagal would be. And I really like that Rob Anybody says, do you know of any Gonagals that have done this before? And Awfully Wee Willie says, well, or Awfully Wee Billy says, no. And Rob Anybody says, well, then you have just as much experience as anybody else. I really liked that. I think Rob Anybody is actually a really good leader. Um, I mean, because yeah. he was kind of the de facto leader in the first book, and he wasn't bad at it. But it's really cool to see him like kind of grow into his own in this book. Yeah, no, because it's like he's actually getting to prove why he's a leader, and not just like being introduced. Where it's like, well, here he is now. He's not just the big man because he's like the oldest the or the one who's or... the strongest. Like he actually knows how to talk to these people. He even is able to inspire Daft Willie, who is still my favorite, when he says, you know, he says, well, you haven't got the brains of a beetle. And then Daft Willie's like, well, that kind of hurt my feelings. And he's like, I'm sorry, you do have the brains of a beetle. Um, and then Daft Willie tells Granny Weatherwax later, I have the brains of a, be- uh, a beetle. But, you know, like he's able to like inspire uh, Daft Willie and he's able to take advice, you know, from Awfully Wee Willie or Awfully Wee Billy. So like it. It feels like he's even grown as a leader. What did you think about Kelda Genie? I think she's exactly what Rob anybody needs. Yeah. Because, like, as we have him growing, we need someone who's, like, just as no-nonsense and as, like, stubborn. But, like, to be in the one position where he has to listen to them. You know? Because yeah. you can't have another like male Nak McFeagle come in and just be like our rival thing. Cause that's, that's not going to work. But like the bit where she tells him to go save Tiffany, where she's like, as your wife. Yeah. I said that, but as, as your Kelda, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this and you need to go save the hag of the Hills. She puts him under a geese, which is like, mm. As far as I am aware, from what I understand of what a geese is, it's, like, really serious stuff. Yeah, it's an obligation that you have to, like, you have to meet. Like, breaking one is, that's essentially death. Like, in, like, Celtic folklore, there's loads of stories of people being put under, or there's a few anyway, conflicting ones, you know, where it's, like, you can't fulfill one without without like essentially failing the other and so then like you die wow i would i need to read some of these but i think it's interesting that kelda genie is she is young and she does have like some growing pains like she and tiffany she's clearly at the beginning like you said kind of sizing tiffany up and she's like trying to make it very clear like this is my clan like you're not kelda anymore i'm kelda but I think she learns, you know, because her first instinct, the first thing she tells Rob anybody is, no, you can't go. Like, she's got to figure it out on her own because she's very jealous of Tiffany and sort of what she means to the Knack Mac Fiegel. But then she sort of realizes, like, it's 
it's not actually a competition between the two of them. It's the the Knackback Fiegel and Rob, anybody specifically, really cares about Tiffany in a way that's not the same as the way they care about Jeannie. And so I did like that all she needed to hear from Rob anybody was, oh, yeah, I love you and you're my Kelda. And then that then she was fine. Like, then she was like, OK, go. Like, in fact, I command you to go. Yeah. I also just loved the scene at near the end where she where she does the ritual with the skin and the water where she puts in like drop of water from like her mother's lake. And then she sits down and she like connects with the memory of all the Keldas before her. And then that's a way that you can see, kind of see the future is like, you can kind of connect with the Keldas that come after you because they're all doing the same thing. That reminded yeah. me a lot of Dune. It reminded me a lot of the, um, the ritual that Jessica does with the Bene Gesserit ritual where she becomes the reverend mother and she connects with all the other reverend mothers, the ones in the past, the ones in the future. And she has all these memories but because the ritual is a secret, she doesn't realize that she shouldn't have done it while pregnant. And that's why um, Aaliyah, her daughter, is like also a reverend mother, even though she's a child. But that's what it reminded me of, was that sense of connection of oh, memory. Cool. Oh, you haven't read Dune? <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, that it's very similar. This idea that like the, the, mem- the connection through memory, through shared memory. Okay. Because that's how they know things, right? That's how they keep their history intact. It's not just the Gonagal, it's also through these rituals that the Kelda does. It reminded me of uh, Avatar, uh, with the fact that they have like a connection to their past lives yeah. up until Vatu destroys Korra's Link with the, av- the past Avatars, which they yeah. never, they never like fix by the end of Korra. That's still no. just like a thing. What did you think? I have I have to ask because I know it came up in the last recording. What did you think about the end of Korra and her romantic, her eventual romantic ending? She's sort of with Asami, is that correct? She is with Asami. Um, they make it canon in the comics, but the idea, even after right. it came out, they were like, yes, they are together. Okay, good. Yeah, because I, I haven't read the comics, but I was just like, no, I'm fully for that. Yeah. It was kind of surprising, but also not surprising. And I, I like Asami way better than any of the other options. So I was very yeah. into it. It is also like it really does speak to the experience of like a queer youth, though, where you have just like dated all of your friend group at some point. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yes, this is messy. Yes, I will continue. Uh, yes, I will do it again. Yes, I will keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much everybody except for obviously the brothers have dated at that point. So it's, yeah. Yes. It's very, very funny. I did like Hamish trying to ride or trying to fly the broom, which I I just thought that that was like a hilarious gag as well. Yeah, I like as well just that like Tiffany's not good at riding a broom. That's another connection between her and Granny because Granny has the broom that doesn't work particularly well. And Tiffany can't, like, she gets really bad motion sickness on brooms. Which, as someone who also gets motion sick in cars, I, I feel you. I feel you, girl. It's not great. A couple of other things. One, I was going to ask you because, so we've talked a lot about the chalk as a location. And the fact that it is that, like, part, it's very much like that part of England. Um, it's the south part, right? 
Um, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 so funny. It's so funny hearing an American describe it, uh, the United Kingdom like that because that's how we all talk about America. Where yeah, like, I know it's like it's the it's the southern bit, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the west part. Yeah, yeah. Or it, it's like if you ask like people like where's Oregon? I don't know the the left bit. The left Just, part. You, where you're like yeah. the bottom part of England. Yeah, um, like di- like over. That kind of area, like this, like really well known for its chalk. Like that's what the White Cliffs of Dover are. They're big chalk cliffs. Yeah, we've talked about that, but we get another landmark in this book that I, is very important both to Tiffany symbolically, but also I think to the chalk as a uh, a setting. It's the horse. The horse. Yeah. It, does that have a a real life counterpart? Not that I'm aware of. Like there are loads of them. You know, in America, you have like the chalk man at Wilmington and you've got the I mean, obviously, like across the world, you have one of my favorite things ever. The Nazca Lions. I'm fucking I'm fucking bananas for the uh, Nazca Lions, which and I think it's interesting as well that like cultures across both sides of the world did this thing. But as far as I'm aware, there's not really like a big horse. I could be wrong. Well, I think it's interesting that everybody is always like, it doesn't even look like a horse. And then Tiffany's like, it's not, it's not meant to be a horse. Look like a horse. It's what a horse would be like. It's it's like the essence of a horse. Yeah, no, because I, I was like, that's, I like that as a concept. And especially then to go back to something I really enjoyed in the We Free Men, the sort of metaphysics of it all. Yeah. I like that. But then I was also like, oh, this feels like one of those callbacks to stuff that we've already seen. Like, it's not what a horse is not what a horse looks like. It's what a horse be is what she says. There is a real horse, actually. Okay. Uh, The Uffington White Horse. Okay. It's a pre and it looks remarkably like the illustration. So it's quite clearly that, like, there's at least some design inspiration for the like illustration in the book the uffington white horse is prehistorical prehistoric hill figure 110 meters or for you yanks 360 foot long formed from deep trenches filled with crushed white chalk it's in oxfordshire so where is oxfordshire that's like this is actually in the midlands like that's nowhere near the coast at all yeah i was like it's somewhere it's somewhere near london like close enough to london so it's kind of like a combination of a couple of things. Yeah, because then when you look at the, the district map for Oxfordshire, there's a, a whole district in it called Vale of White Horse. I thought that the horse was a good symbol, too, because we I mean, we just talked about how Tiffany's identity is so tied to the land. But the idea is she needs to be able to be a witch and have that identity anywhere that she goes. You know, she, her identity needs to be stable. And so the idea of her bringing the land to her, she's able to bring that identity along with her into a new place. And that's symbolized by the horse, right? Breaking out of the ground and running, which is such a great image. I love just the idea of like a giant horse, like unearthing itself and, you know, running to her, I thought was great. I mean, a horse is also symbolically freedom and they're very tied then as well to just rural life. Yeah, so, oh yeah, that does look a lot like it. And I like that it's a, it's a necklace that she has, too. Yeah, that was really sweet. The, like, 
the fact that this like this is something that's been done for her and the bit at the end then where granny says to like throw it away and then you know where like this is what she decides or like that's her point where she can decide when to be a witch and when to be a human yeah and and also it's an idea that like her identity should be tied to herself and not to other witches so like granny weatherwax yeah she's gotten rid of everything that is like she considers a distraction or you know she lives her life she lives her life a very certain way and that's shown in her cottage but that's not the way she doesn't expect tiffany to live the same way that she does and you know she that that's her basically testing her right and saying like you shouldn't just be me you should be yourself yeah she's not mr mrs earwig yeah, exactly. Um, she's not looking to make Tiffany a copy of herself, which is, I think, what all good mentors should, you know, think about. The idea that, like, you're the person you're training, you can give them all the knowledge that you have without making them you, which I think is important. A couple of other things. First of all, we haven't talked about Miss Level, who is the other really important character in this. Uh, what did you think about Miss Level? I love Miss Level. She's great. She's really sweet. I mean... It's really like her whole character is just sort of sold by the fact that Granny is like, she's better at this aspect of witching than me. And I'm like, yep, sold. I, I like the, tro- I've always liked the trope of one mind and two bodies. I think that that is a really cool idea for a character. And I like that, like, she sometimes passes herself off as twins, which I think is, is interesting because it's like the thing that people understand. I thought it was very sad when half of her died. I will say the one thing I don't like about this book is that I do feel like it kind of brushes past that a little bit too quickly, I think, because it is kind of like she like she severely maimed Miss Level. I mean, I, I know that it wasn't actually Tiffany. It was the Hiver, you know, using Tiffany's thoughts or Tiffany's impulses that Tiffany would never do. But like, I think everyone except for Tiffany brushes past it a little bit too fast, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. like Miss level seems to be like, Even Oh, Ms. well, level. yeah. Miss level seems to be like, Oh, well I can still, I can still like do things with my body that isn't there, which is cool. I like that idea too, but she kind of treats it like, Oh, well, th- and that means that everything's fine. Everything's not fine. You know, like that to me just doesn't seem, I don't know. To me, it just didn't seem realistic. And I'm not saying that Tiffany should like be made to suffer for it or anything. I just feel like there would be a little bit more trauma from that event. Although the moment where like she's doing stuff still like consciously or, you know, like she's doing stuff with her, her other body when it's dead and granny, you know, the word granny's like, don't, don't think about it. Just focus on me. Get me the biscuits, this kind of thing. Like that's, that's a really nice moment where she like, she can still do it. And it's it is like, you know, positive disability rep where it's like you're not your life isn't over just because oh, yeah. you lost a part of you, which like it would be easy to be like, well, she's like a shell of her former self and she can't do anything now. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that that is that is obviously the way that the story should go. And I do like it as a disability metaphor, but that doesn't erase the fact that like half of her body was like poofed into non-existence in a very violent way. Yes. It just seemed like it, like you said, that moment is so horrifying and so like intense. Yeah. And it just feels like the book wants to move past it a little bit too fast. Pacing in this book was real weird. That's like, 
I gave this book four stars because I was like, the pacing feels really off to me. Like, this could easily have been 100 pages longer. No problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I did also like that uh, the Knack-Knack Fecal are, like, completely unfazed by Miss Level because they're just like, oh, yeah, like, we've been to a place where, like, they're, they're, like five bodies are connected with one mind and, like, the one of them just has a huge hand just for opening pickle jars, <laughs> which to me seemed like a yeah. great, it, it was a great metaphor for interdependence, and I really enjoyed that. It's also just, like, I kind of want to see that creature now. Yeah, I do too. I think that would be so cool. The last thing I wanted to talk about, um, or last character I should say that I wanted to talk about, is actually Petulia. I have to say, the first time I read this book, I kind of lumped Petulia in with Anagramma, not because I think that they're the same character. Anagramma is a very, like, plot-based character. Like, she kind of has to exist for something, as something for Tiffany to kind of, like, push back against. She's sort of a Miss Earwig stand-in. In some ways, mm. but she doesn't really have a lot of a personality outside of just being like mean. <laughs> Petulia, I appreciated her more as a character on this read through. And I think it's because I really like the scene and it's when she comes when she comes up the mountain to help Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax, where she says, you know, Miss Level told me there was a horrible monster. They were going off to fight a horrible monster, and I came to see if I could help. I really like yeah. the scene where Tiffany says, her treacherous second thoughts thought, and what would you have done if it had attacked us? She had a momentary picture of Petulia standing in front of some horrible raging thing, but it wasn't as funny as she'd first thought. Petulia would stand in front of it, shaking with terror, her useless amulets clattering, scared almost out of her mind, but not backing away. She thought there might be people facing something horrible here, and she had come anyway. And I, I just, that made me like fall in love with Petulia because I, she is kind of silly she is kind of, you know, with her jewelry and, you know, all that stuff. And she is kind of, you know, not um, the most confident person or the most um, well-composed person. You know, she she has a lane and she's kind of sticking with it, which is something we've seen before in, in Discworld, people being completely devoted to their vocation, which seems like that's kind of the road she's going down. But she's still a witch. She's still someone yeah. who takes responsibility and who is like, well, if if you know, you can't ask who's going to do it. It's always going to be you, right? And so she she came anyway, even though she had no idea what they were... She doesn't know what's going on with the Hivers. She doesn't know what's happening. She, But she came because she thought maybe she could help. And I... That just made me, like, so... You know, I was just like, oh, Petulia. <laughs> She's that sort of quintessential, like, what Discworld is defining as a hero or heroic... You know, or it's someone who steps up when other people won't. Even though she has no idea what's going on, like, or, like, how... She, she was just told that it was a horrible thing, and she went anyway, you know? Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about this book before we start wrapping it up? Just the sort of, like, there's a lot of callbacks to other Discworld stuff. One of the ones that I, I just, like... You know when Tiffany's talking about the hat, and she can tell when she's wearing the invisible hat? Because, like, when she puts her hand there and it, like, blocks the light, like, it goes slower through it. You know, that's something, like, that constantly came up in the Rinsuant books. The fact that light travels slightly slower through, or the magic travels slower through light. Yeah, I didn't think about that connection. But you're absolutely right. That's, that's very old school Discworld. 
they mention uh like the the telescopic lenses and stuff and you can uh count the dragons on the moon that's a you know something that we like actually saw then in the last hero there are a lot of different call-outs to other Discworld things, and not just Granny Weatherwax things. Um, I did love the scene at the end where Tiffany dances with the bees, which, by the way, implies that Granny Weatherwax borrowing the bees so much has actually changed the way that the bees swarm. It's almost like part of her has like rubbed off on the bees. The implications there are fascinating. I like that they we're bringing up the concept of telling the bees because that's a real life thing. Yeah, you know, I mean there there is like that. There's a uh, Diana Gabaldon book now that's called "Go Tell the Bees When I'm Gone," but like even when the Queen of England died, who I have no sympathy for, they went and they told the royal bees. The royal beekeeper informed them that she had gone. So like this is like an old thing, and I like the fact that maybe she's changed them somewhat. Yeah, just by just by like connecting with them in that way. And yeah. I guess I shouldn't neglect to mention the ending of the book where Tiffany goes back to the chalk and she, you know, they start to realize that she's a witch. She start, you know, she's yeah. wearing the hat and she's but but they're like, oh, but it's Tiffany. And she's like Granny, she's Granny Aching's, you know, grandchild. And like she's our witch, you know, and I I that is such an interesting inversion of the way that witches were treated even just a few years before that. The fact that she is able to come back and be like, no, I'm a witch, but I serve the community in this way. But as well, like, they've seen what happens when people cross Granny Aching. You know, like the, the yeah. mueller who was abusing his, his mule, mm-hmm. you know, where she, like, physically assaulted him. And they're just like, every single person is like, well, we need to be careful not to to cross her in that way. So, like, she's nearly like profiting off of who granny aching was you know like not not in a bad way but she's like if she were anyone else she wouldn't have been welcomed as a witch it's a story right she's giving them a story that they can understand and that is her tie to to granny aching i also like that she can borrow now she's clearly learned either from probably from granny weatherwax uh but like her walking among the sheep and like gently touching their minds like she's they've clearly taught her, OK, what you've been doing is borrowing and this the, this is how you should do it. <laughs> there is, as you said, one death sighting in this book, and it is in the desert and rob anybody tries to attack death, which I thought was great. And I like death's thing about I was not expecting an Akmak Fiegel today. Otherwise, I would have worn protective clothing. Well, especially because the Akmak Fiegel think they're already dead. Yes. I like that. This, I mean, it, it's physically stayed with me 10 years of this yeah. interaction with death and the fact that she tells him what an egress is and he just yeah, Isn't that know. a female eagle? <laughs> and so for all of my life, essentially for what it's counted for, I've known what an egress is because Tiffany told death. Like, I remembered it specifically from that moment, not from any of the other moments throughout the book where Tiffany says what it is you know when she t- says it to to miss tick and when she says about it with miss level i didn't remember it from any of those so like this is to me it's the most important death sighting in all of this world it has impacted you the most per- on a personal level yeah not thematically or anything it just it's had the most sticking power 
I will also say that I love that this sort of, even though they don't interact directly in this book, this also kind of continues the the death granny weatherwax uh, push and pull that we've seen in other books because, you know, death tells Tiffany, you know, there are rules. Like, it's easier to get in than it is to get out, you know, like all that sort of thing. And then granny weatherwax comes and gets her. And Tiffany she says, fucking kicks her way in. Yeah. And Tiffany's like, I thought there were rules. And Granny said, Oh, really? Did you sign anything? Did you take any kind of oath? No, then they weren't your rules. <laughs> um, I just, I loved that. I love that Granny Weatherwax is like, That's stupid. <laughs> like, like, it brings up something we haven't really considered before that, like, maybe death as a system takes advantage of people. Like, I know we have death being like, sort of villainous i guess or at least like like as a bad force through susan's eyes in the start of yeah. like her books in, in soul music and stuff but it's like no he's just trying his best but maybe death as a system isn't isn't particularly fair it, he is bound by rules that other people aren't bound by and so like it could be that like that yeah they are his rules but there are rules yeah, well, that there's, there is there is no justice. There's just him. Right. And so, like, it could be also that he just can't imagine not having those rules. And so someone like Granny, who honestly cheats all the time, you know, is going yes. to is going to have a different view of things than he does. That that would be my personal understanding of what's happening here. But I, I think it's just because they're just two very different characters who understand the universe very, very differently. Oh yeah, I'm not like implying that death is like active in this unfairness or taking advantage of people, but there, of course, unfortunately, are no death of rats or sort sightings. I wish, I wish there were. I I would really love to see death of rats in an Act McFeagle meet. I think that would be really fun. The first footnote is on page 26 of my book. It is where Tiffany is actually talking to Miss Tick about the horse, and. Miss Tick says in response, oh, said Miss Tick, but because she was a teacher as well as a witch and probably couldn't help herself, she added, the thing, the funny thing is, of course, that officially there's no such thing as a white horse. They're called gray. Footnote. She had to say that because she was a witch and a teacher, and that is a terrible combination. They want things to be right. They want things to be correct. If you want to upset a witch, you don't have to mess around with charms and spells. You just have to put her in a room with a picture that's hung slightly crooked and watch her squirm. Great footnote. I, I actually really like that. Uh, I know people like that who, if you put them in a room and there's like something slightly crooked, they're just going to like, it's going to like eat away at them. And so the idea that that's like a, uh, kind of a personality trait that a lot of witches have. I think that that's really good characterization. Yeah, what I didn't like about the footnotes in this is a lot of it is stuff that we just got as actual text in the We Free Men or yeah. in other books before, like the whole the joke about psychology, how she calls it per psychology, where she's like, yeah, she'd read the dictionary, but it wasn't a pronouncing dictionary and things like that. Like it was stuff we had already seen. So it was kind of like, like, there's not very many footnotes in this book. So then when you take out the ones that are just stuff we've got already that aren't, like, interesting, there's, like, really not that many at all. I did like the one about the, um, like, when they're they're talking about the uh, research into hivers, that where it's, like, the, the Latin res centum et una quas magus facere potet, you know, and liber imanus monstrorum, where, like, that's really tied to 
like stuff from i guess in the british isles childhoods you know where you get these books at like a scholastic book fair or something like 101 things a boy can do or the monster book of monsters you know like that just sort of like i like that and you know like we're citing this in a scholarly way i just like i love as a whole terry pratchett using latin for like just fun things um i think the way he uses latin is so funny my favorite footnote is actually, I, I agree with you about the footnotes. I don't think there are that many of them and not, not any, many of them are as good as footnotes we've seen in the past. I did really though, like the one where they're trying to figure out how to get into Tiffany's head. And uh, they're like, we need something to like guide us. And Rob says, he, Rob pulls up the horse necklace and he says, uh, she tried to turn herself into some kind of creature of the night, but something made her keep this. It'll be in her head, too. Tis important to her. All we need to do is front a wheelstone on it, and it'll take us right where she is. Footnote. If anyone knew what this meant, they'd know a lot more about the Knack MacFeagle's way of traveling. I really liked that because, like you, we said in The We Free Men, the fact that they can like get in and out of anywhere, except for pubs that they have a problem getting out of, which I thought was a fun what joke. you see in this book. Uh, you know, I liked that that's continued here and that like the idea that they can like get into her head, which yes. I mean, isn't that surprising because they can get into the dreams, right? That the drums create. I-, I like that there are technical terms for what they do, but we cannot understand them because we're not knack fecal. I love the like just the narrative is just sort of like shrugs its shoulders, just goes. Nah. But I like that like he's like, all we got to do is friend a wheelstone. And it's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> But, you know, we can't understand it because we're not Mac 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 Fiegel. I have just a relevant one, a relevant reaction image to, to that, just because I, I sent it recently to someone. I've been responding a lot in group chats with just reaction images I've saved off of Twitter. It, it's it's just uh, David Mitchell from that Mitchell and Webb look being like, sorry, excuse me, what the fuck are you talking about? Yes, we just fran at a wheelstone. Excuse me, what the fuck? I'm sorry, what the fucking hell are you talking about? (laughs) What's something that made you laugh in this book? It's, hold on, I'm just going to send the image as well so you can look at it. It's the bit where Rob is like having an existential crisis. (laughs) And they're, you know, like, they're like, oh, he's dead. Oh, whaley, whaley. And he's like, Ah. oh, will you hush your gob, you big mudlins? Shouted Rob, anybody standing up. I am no dead. I'm trying to have a moment of existential dread here, right? Crivens, it's a poor lookout if a man kind of feel the chilly winds of fate lashing around his nethers without folks telling him he's dead, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I really enjoyed that. That was great. There were two that are kind of tied for me, and they're both Granny Weatherwax related. They're very short. One is Granny Weatherwax calling Daft Wooly Daft William. <laughs> I don't know yes. why that makes me laugh so hard, but the fact that she insists on using his full name, just like, it's great. I love when anyone, just as a comedy thing, takes like a nickname or like a slang thing and treats it like it's a real yeah, name. Definitely. Or like a real thing. And then I also really liked when Miss Level said about her trying to, you know, use her muscle memory as Miss Level instead of, you know, thinking about it. How she says it's very difficult to do this. It's like trying not to think of a pink rhinoceros. And the the whole thing of, with Granny Weatherwax saying, I'm not thinking of one right now. It's not that hard. And then Tiffany later saying, you don't know what a rhinoceros looks like, right? 
I, I thought that that yes. was perfect. It was very Granary Weatherwax where she, the way she says it, it's like, I am so in control of my own mind that this is not going to distract me. But actually, but actually it's sort of a trick, right? Which is classic Granny Weatherwax. What's something that made you think? I mean, it's, it's nothing like new. It's just, it, it's like continuation of things we've already like seen and have been espoused on throughout the series as a whole but just um when miss tick is talking about what witches are afraid of witches didn't fear much miss tick had said but that was the but what the powerful ones were afraid of even if they didn't talk about it was what they called going to the bad it was too easy to slip into careless little cruelties because you had power and other people hadn't too easy to think other people didn't matter much too easy to think that ideas like right and wrong didn't apply to you and then, you know, talking about how you end up, you know, in a gingerbread house, which is applicable only to witches. But, like, you see that, you know, you see that all the time, minus the gingerbread thing, with, like, how governments work, you know, and how easy it is for them to turn sort of despotic. Yeah, and it kind of uh, links back to what Granny says in Carpe Juggalum to the, the Omnian priest who when she says that the root of all sin is treating people as things because she's like it all starts there it all yeah. starts when you start treating people like they're things and that i think it really hooks together with what you just read the thing that made me think that all made me think as well especially the the part where she talks about how caring for people kind of helps you center yourself i thought that was really good but i also really liked the part at the very, very end, and I'm sure you're going to read this over again, but the part where she snatches the hat off that she's you know, been wearing, that the Hiver got, it wasn't a bad hat for show, although the stars made it look like a toy, but it was never her hat. It couldn't be. The only hat worth wearing was the one you made for yourself, not one you bought, not one you were given. Your own hat for your own head, your own future, not someone else's. And to me, I like that this is at the end because I like how the hat becomes this metaphor for finding your identity, right? And finding out who you are, which is really Tiffany's arc in this book. And I like the idea... Because Granny makes her own hat every, every year, year. She makes her own hat. And I, I like that Tiffany has realized at the end of this book that she has to make her own identity. She can't take it from someone else, which is kind of where she was at the beginning, where she's like, okay, I'm going off to learn how to be a witch. I'm going to learn how to have this identity. But she's like, no, like I have to make my own hat. I have to make my own identity. And honestly, I wish that somebody had told me that when I was Tiffany's age, because I would have wasted a lot less time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, it's, it's a really important lesson and to learn and i don't think a lot of people learn it until they're like in their 20s or even like with me their late 20s this idea that like it doesn't actually you can't wear someone else's hat you can only wear your own hat and i think that that's that's really good that's something that like i'm only really counting experiences that i've had since i was like 18 and up essentially like closer to 20 you know because like i'm now an adult with discerning tastes and i can do things like I was talking with my mother about like having been to a circus. And I was like, I don't think I've ever been to a circus. And she was like, Oh no, I brought you to one when you were like two that like, you know, we all went in or whatever. And I was like, well, that doesn't count. Cause I don't remember that. I have, I haven't experienced that. I'm like, I'm a completely different person, but even like things I did when I was like 10 or 11, that wasn't me. But yeah, I just, the one thing I want to talk about to your question is just, we haven't mentioned it at all. I just fucking love 
the title. Just a hat full of Perfect sky. Perfect title. Yeah, absolutely. Such an incredible title. It is great. And her making the hat, making a hat out of sky and Granny Aching making a hat out of sky. I am making the, the, the wind her cloak. It, it's just, it's very good. Very good stuff. I mean, obviously it has thematic resonance, but just that combination of words. Mwah. Chef's kiss. Shh, willow. Next episode. The Industrial Revolution continues in Ankh-Morpork Pork with the rebuilding Ooh. of the post office in Going Postal. So we're going to talk about mail. Yeah, we're going to talk about Ankh-Morpork Pork infrastructure, which is going to be fun. Because this is like essentially a new series, right? Like, I mean, I suppose the truth was kind of one of those. Yes, this is a new branch. It's technically part of the Industrial Revolution's branch, but yeah, from it what is I, new characters. Um, from what so I understand, new POV a character. new character who's like yeah. ongoing then in the rest of this sort of like sub-series. So, yeah, so it's essentially like yes. a full new series, which is exciting considering we're 30 plus books into a 41 book series. Yeah, it's like a mini series within a series. Yeah, like a little little tiny branch off of the branch. I like it. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on on Twitter uh, at Spicy Nigel, where I've not been doing much recently. It's sort of turned into a hellscape, so Twitter is bad to use. But I have I have had a tweet that had like a lot of traction on it. it was a response to a news article where someone was like. Oh, why do people sing up the Ra? Why do kids sing up the Ra, not up Al Qaeda? Because Sinn Fein has won. Just this nonsense, just constant same old nonsense in the thing. And I said the author of the article even looks like she's cosplaying Margaret Thatcher, and it's gotten seventy three likes. Just I just I think it's hilarious the notion of cosplaying Margaret Thatcher. I, I do also have a blue sky, which I know you have and the show also has, which is social or something, isn't it? I don't really use it, uh, to be honest. I find using a lot of apps, that's too much headspace. But you can find me there. And then my shows, Hyperfixations, that's, it's not dead. We're just getting things together. So we appreciate your patience. That's the only one, really. I'm trying to get Among the Stacks back up and running. The only thing, really, we've done is we've updated the episode art for this stuff. But the blog that, like, really gave me such a knock took me out of commission. Now people are, like, speaking up about that from all the horrible stuff it's done in the interim. And it's like, ah, oh, I'm so here for its downfall. Like, I like revenge is a petty emotion, but, like, I'm fueled by it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like a uh, granny weatherwax in uh, uh, sea and th- the little fishes, where she's like, "We should, we should get onto the forgiving." I didn't say anything about forgetting. <laughs> Forgive and forget, no regret and remember. <laughs> you can find me on Blue Sky at the By Paradox and on Storygraph at the By Paradox as well. I'm currently trying to read through most of the Hugos, the 2023 nominations for the Hugo Awards. The nominees it is it is going <laughs> it is it is continuing um but you can find me there as well i am also writing still writing for movie john um by the time this article or this episode comes out i should have an article that just dropped on humans versus ai um i'm writing it ahead of the creator release so you should be able to find that on movie john as well that's 
moviejawn.com. You can find this podcast on Twitter. I guess I haven't been on Twitter in forever, but you can find it on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find it on Blue Sky and Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. The words ran through Tiffany's mind as she watched the sheep, and she found herself filling up with joy at the new lambs, at life, at everything. Joy is to fun what the deep sea is to a puddle. It's a feeling inside that can hardly be contained. I've come back, she announced to the hills, better than I went. She snatched off the hat with stars on it. It wasn't a bad hat, for show, although the stars made it look like a toy. But it was never her hat. It couldn't be. The only hat worth wearing was was the one you were given. Your own hat, for your own head. Your own future, not someone else's. She hurled the starry hat up as high as she could. The wind there caught it neatly. It tumbled for a moment, and then was lifted by a gust, and, swooping and spinning, sailed away across the downs and vanished forever. Then Tiffany made a hat out of the sky, and sat on the old potbelly stove, listening to the wind around the horizons while the sun went down. As the shadows lengthened, many small shapes crept out of the nearby mound, and joined her in the sacred place to watch. The sun set, which is everyday magic, and warm night came. The hat filled up with stars. The end.